invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we'll read the first 11 verses here in a minute. Um, But you know, as we uh, gather here this morning thinking about this passage, I'm thinking about the angels that got an opportunity to come uh, down to the earth and talk to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. You know, they came with a message that was good news for everyone. They had a message both of peace and of joy for all people. And I really feel like that is what our message is today. And it's going to be something um, that will just kind of carry on that theme. Um, As Christians, we are... Um, we're going to have times where we feel separated from God, even alienated from God. Um, But Jesus actually came to make peace between us and God when he saved us. And so that's a major idea that we'll be talking about today. But that's not where the good news actually ends in this passage. Um, Because what we need to know is the past, the present, and the future effects of our salvation. That's something that we need to know so that we can know how we're saved, why we're saved and where we're going with this. Um, And so we know that we're going to still face some difficulties as Christians, um, but we have a reason to rejoice this morning. And so as we get into this, we're going to see those reasons. And, you know, if there's any pessimists in the room, you may be looking for bad news, some some way to kind of, you know, see, see where there's the catch or where the other shoe falls or anything like that. But I challenge you in this passage to find bad news. It is all good, and it's something that I think we can find a lot of reasons to really celebrate God. Um, So let's learn together about this great salvation that we've been given. Now, the sermon in the sentence um, is, is, is pretty simple. Our salvation, which demonstrates the love of God, transforms our lives now and forever. So I titled this The Peace with God. And and the reason is, and that's just kind of one idea that's here, um, but when we think about what matters most, like right now in our lives, like what matters most as we live on this earth is peace with God. We struggle so much with so many different things, and peace is not really a major theme in the world, but it can be between us and God. There can be peace through the work of Jesus. And so that's going to be the thought as we go through this. So I'm just going to read you this passage. It is short, um, and we'll be able to look and see what the Lord has to say this morning. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
Okay, so if you have been following along on this study of Romans, you know that as it goes from chapter 1 to 2 to 3, essentially all Paul's talking about is the sinfulness of mankind. See, he makes an argument that even people that, that did not know about God had no excuse because God has revealed himself in nature and God has written his law on our hearts. And so when we deny the existence of God, even though we see the creation, when we go against God's laws, the ones that are written on our heart, uh, we are still guilty before God. And then he talked about the Jews and the fact that they were given the law and that that was an advantage because they knew what they were supposed to do, but yet they did not keep the law. So it isn't those that just have it, it's those that actually keep it. They are sinful. And then he kind of wraps that up in chapter 3 by saying we're all sinful. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Well, then chapter 3, the end of it, begins to talk about reconciliation. It begins to talk about what Jesus did in order to save us. And so basically what God says is that Jesus was publicly displayed and that, that, that he paid the price for our sins. When we believe that God will use that sacrifice to save us, we are saved. And it is by faith, it is not by works. And so then all of chapter 4 essentially is using Abraham as an example that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness before the law was given, before any law was obeyed. Even some of the laws that Abraham did receive, he was counted as righteous before any of that. So the case that Paul is making is that we are saved by faith. That's the point that he's making. So uh, now he's going to move on to explain what this salvation means for us. And so um, one of the very important features of our salvation is that we are justified. Now, when you say that word in English, it may not carry the kind of weight that, it, that maybe it should. But the way that it's written there, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, even in English, we can see that's past tense, right? We have been justified. And so what does that mean? That means that it's already a completed action. It's like, it's like if, if something is going on and I take a picture, well, that never changes again, right? So if I was to pull out my phone right now and take a picture of all of you, it would never change, right? It, it is, that is what you are. That is who you are. That's what you look like. That's what you wore today. All of that is, 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 it is recorded. That is the meaning of this word, have been justified. You have been justified. That is a finished idea. Jesus has justified us. Now, when we talk about what that means, it means that it removes any notion um, that we could ever lose our salvation because it exists as a completed action in the past. So that is a wonderful thing. So the part of our lives where we were under condemnation has ended and we have been vindicated as having completed or complied with the requirements of the law. So when we are saved, it's not like God just covers our sins. It's like he makes it to where we have never sinned at all. In other words, our record now reads that we have completely complied with the law. Now, this is not something we have done. It's something that Jesus has done for us. He has provided that righteousness for us. And so it's not a work. It's not something that is maintained. It's not something that is earned. It is freely given by the grace of God. So that's the beauty of our salvation. That's the justification part of it. So beyond this justification, he says, um, so therefore, since we have now been justified by faith, then Paul begins to list off some reasons that we have to rejoice. Rejoice is listed three times in this passage, and it is the theme. It is one of the major themes is that we should be celebrating God because of these things. So the very first thing, faith in Christ brings peace with God. 
So faith in Christ brings peace with God. So that is the very first thing we see here. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the justified person is no longer tormented with questions of his relationship with God um, arising from the fact that he is a sinner. When we are saved, do we still sin? Yes, we do still sin. And so because of that, we are tempted, and certainly the enemy comes in and tries to tempt us to say we're not worthy, we're not deserving, and God didn't really save us. And so he tries to push us away from God by making us see that we still sin. But that is a lie of Satan. We do sin, but the lie is that that we still have enmity, that we still have hostility between us and God. That has been settled. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But all of that hostility, all of that, all of that trouble between us and God has now been settled. Because when God looks on our accounts, He pulls the records and He says, Nope, you are justified. It is, it, it is as if you have complied with all of the law. It's a work that Jesus did. It's not something that we earn. We still have to live lives that are, that are in, in accordance with God's law. We still have to work towards being better, and we'll talk about that. But the, the legal status of a believer never changes. And that's what's really important for us to recognize, is that we have peace with God because Jesus settled that account. And it can't get out of balance ever again because He settled it eternally. And so that's an important thing that we have to remember. So, though we are sinners... We are at peace with God because of what God has done for us. It is not our actions. It never was. And that continues to be an idea that Paul is presenting is that it is God's work, not ours. The second thing that we have to rejoice about is that believers also gain access into grace in which they stand before God. Or into this grace, actually, is the way that the text reads. So access, it means that we have been granted um, access or granted an introduction to a higher power, to somebody that is superior. The better word really is introduction. Um, so if you've ever been to a party or something, where, like a formal type thing, where someone's kind of taking you and bringing you to people and introducing you, let me introduce you to this person, they're bringing you into this person's presence. And that's the picture of what Jesus is doing, is, is he went and got us. And now he is bringing us into the presence of God. We didn't have the power to go into the presence of God. We don't have the strength to enter God's presence, but Jesus is bringing us in. That's what this access is all about. And you know, the access to grace, he says access to this grace. Ultimately, this grace is God. Grace doesn't exist apart from God. There is no other way that it exists. Uh, and grace is this freely given goodwill that God has that he pours out on us and, he, and it doesn't exist outside of him. And so what we have to understand is that we have this peace with God. There's no more enmity between us and God. We have this access to God. Now we are, we are with him. We have been brought into his circle. We've been brought into his family. And then also, the justified also rejoice in the hope of God's glory. So we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. So what does that mean? When Paul says that we stand, first of all, he says in which we stand, he means that our choice to follow Christ is continuous. It is a continuous thing. We have decided and we will continue to decide to do this. Um, but this rejoicing in this, in this context actually means to verbally show off. That's actually what the word means. And so as Christians, we should always be telling others about the hope that we have found. We need to say, look, you know, and you, you can take it back to playground days. Well, my dad can beat up your dad. Well, our God can save us. Your God can't. 
And that is the reality, and it may sound exclusive, it may sound combative, but the most loving thing you can do is give people the right answer, right? So if, if you're in the grocery store and you see somebody like me wandering around in the cereal looking for the flour, right? So I'm not ever going to find it, hardly am I. And so the, the nice thing you could do is say, you, you just keep going the way you're going and you'll find it eventually. Or you could say, no, it's on the baking good aisle three rows down. And, and that might feel rude, but that was the most help you could possibly be to me is tell me where it actually is. And so when we go around and we talk to people today, and today people say, well, you know, I believe in this other religion, or I believe that if I live my religion the best way possible, I'll make it to God they're never going to find the flower. They're never going to get there. They're going to keep looking at cereal and then, and then they're just going to make it to the canned goods and they're never going to find the flower. Do you understand what I'm saying? If we don't tell them the right answer, they'll never find the right answer. The most loving thing we can do, even if we have to kind of crush the, the idea that lives in them that they can just make their own way to God, we may have to do that to lovingly tell them, no, Jesus is the answer. That is the only answer. And so when we rejoice, sometimes that rejoicing becomes a witness. And that witness is powerful when we're telling people about the God who saved us. So notice that it says the hope of God's glory or the hope of the glory of God. So think about that for just a minute. Left to ourselves... We fall short of God's glory, don't we? Romans 3, 23, we've already covered that. But all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So left to ourselves, we fall short of God's glory. But the work of Christ has altered that. We know that, God, that Jesus, while he was on this earth, he prayed in the high priestly prayer, let the disciples see my glory. We know that Stephen, when he was being martyred, when he was dying, he looked up and he saw Jesus in his glory. So that glory is something that Christians are going to see. The Savior wanted us to see it. He let Stephen see it. It is something that we can get to. It is a process that God is doing in our lives to get us there. In fact, so here's a really interesting thing. The glory of God is a part of the transformation that God is working in us. And so here's the passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You are being transformed into this glory of God. So that's your hope, that you will be like God. He is working you that direction from one stage to another. You might say, well, I must be in the early stages, and maybe you are, but He is working you towards a way that you will live like Him. You will have the righteousness that has already been credited to you. You will have what has already been counted. And so that is part of our salvation is hope that we will one day be like Him, that we will one day be righteous, that we won't live in sin. So yes, our sin has been canceled. It's like we've never broken the law, but in reality, we still sin. And that is part of our salvation is we will continually, from one glory to the next, those things will be rooted out and, and cast out of our lives. And so Paul's not saying you get saved, you never lose your salvation, you can go do whatever you want. He says, no, instead you get saved and from one step to another we are becoming more and more like the sentence that has been passed on us which is righteous. So we will become more like that as we go. Now, if you're looking for bad news, you might think, well, as a Christian, we still suffer, so there's your bad news. But 
as we read this passage, we see that we have a new understanding of the suffering that actually happens in our lives. So let's look at that for a minute. Another important thing about our salvation is that it changes the way we view our salvation or the, our, 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 our suffering or the way that we understand it. You know, it's never going to be fun to suffer. Nobody's ever going to say, you know what, yay, I've got another terrible crisis in my life. Nobody's going to be like that. But our faith does give us a new way to understand the suffering in our lives so that we can still give God glory, even though it may be bad at that particular time. So in this context, the word suffering, it's a harsh term. It's not simple things. It's not, you know, kind of light things. It, it is a tough thing. It is about being, you know, pressed down. It is almost like the word tribulation. You know, the, tribu- the word tribulation actually has the word rock in it, and the idea is that there is a weight that is just bearing down on you, and this suffering is a lot like that. So it means that, that, that we, are, we, are, we are pressed, we are pushed, we are going through difficult times, and so it can refer to like the physical or economic problems that the people had in the first century where the Romans actually came and arrested them and put them in prison or they kind of kept them out of the economy so that they couldn't participate if they claimed to be a Christian and they would not worship the emperor, things like that. But it can also be like the verbal abuse and the exclusion and things that we are facing today as Christians um, kind of in this 21st century world. So it also has in view things like natural disasters. It has in view political catastrophe, which you could describe certain things as political catastrophes. Uh, Economic hardship, accidents, illness, death, and great wickedness. All of these things that have occurred in every single generation, these would all be sufferings. And Christians go through them just like other people do. You know, the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. We face some of those very same sufferings. But in all of these things, in all of these sufferings, we can rejoice because in all of them, we understand that God is using them to grow us. This is the understanding that Christians have about salvation, is that God will, or suffering, is that God will use those sufferings to make us better, to grow us. And so what does he say here? He says, first of all, um, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering provides or produces endurance. So suffering produces endurance. Endurance is the power to stand or to withstand hardship and stress. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the picture of a soldier who's in the middle of a battle, and he's not going to back down. He's not distracted by the, the problems that are around him. He's given just as good as he's getting. He is fighting with everything he's got, regardless of what's happening around him. That's what endurance is. So when we hear that word, we understand that it means someone that's actually in it and fighting but staying strong. Endurance also produces character. So that's the next one. It, 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 it produces character. So character is like dependability. So it's being proven to be reliable. It's the difference between a veteran and a raw recruit. It is the one that has proven they're going to stand. They're not going to fall. They're not going to fold under pressure. They're not going to give up. They're not going to turn around and run away. It's somebody that's been there and has kind of been through the fights before so they know what to do. So this is the idea of a mature Christian. They have endurance. They're going to keep going. They're going to keep pushing. They're not going to be defeated by their circumstances. They're not going to let the things around them take their joy away. They're going to focus on the Lord and the promises that He has made to them. And they are somebody that's already been in that foxhole before. They've already been in that fight before. They have proven that they will not give up, so they continue to stand. They continue to fight. But look at this last one. Character also produces hope. So Paul is saying that this hope, this genuine hope, It never puts those that have it to shame. So why would he say that? So look at what it says. It says, uh, endurance produces character and character produces hope. Verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame. 
Now that one, I'm going to tell you, that one stumped me as I began reading it. What does that mean? Hope putting us to shame. But never being put to shame means we will never be humiliated for believing in Christ. There will never come a point where we say, my God can do this, and it's proven that he can't do it. There will never be a point where we say, my God can save me, and he can't save me. There will never be that point. You look through scriptures, and that is exactly how God revealed himself to the nations multiple times. People said, well, my God can do this, and they're like, no way. And then they, they went ahead with it, and yes, he can. You think about the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even you think of Jonah and the fact that he was, you know, he said, this is all for me, and if you throw me out, then, then it'll be better. And they didn't want to murder him, but they did anyway. And he lived, and it was God that, that could do above and beyond what the human imagination can conceive. That is who our God is. And so our hope in Jesus will never put us to shame. That's the picture of what that hope is. So this hope is actually based on the love of God that is put into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It is, this picture is really interesting. It's like the Holy Spirit has, has funneled the love of God directly into our hearts. And, not, and, and there's no holding back. In fact, God's love has been expressed without restraint in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So he has poured his love into us. There is no limits. There's no borders. There's no conditions, no boundaries. God is pouring his love into our hearts. And that is giving us the hope that we will never be disappointed by God. So we will continue to face suffering and our lives will become more difficult. But we know that God is bringing good out of every sorrow we face. And let me just give you a spoiler alert. Paul is not done with that idea. The idea that even though we face suffering, um, God's going to use it for good. That idea is coming back. And so it's a, it's a, it's a proven Christian principle. But let's look at the last portion of this, where we find a new assurance for final judgment. Now, this might sound like the bad news. Judgment's always bad, right? Not if Jesus has already changed your fate. And so that is where we're going to be. So the apostle begins to think about the assurance that we have in our salvation and its lasting effects. So we have this, have been justified... Well, in this part of the passage, verse 6 through 11, we're going to see we'll be justified. Have been reconciled, will be reconciled. We're going to see some of the future tense here, and that's going to change some things for us. It's going to help us understand a few things. So first of all, Paul explains what sort of state we were in when Jesus died for us. So in verse 6, it says, while we were still weak. So what does it mean that we were weak? Well, that means moral frailty. It means that we lacked moral strength. And we know what that means. So we know that, that there is this, this, this drive in us now to do what is right, even though that's difficult. As believers, we have that drive. But before, it was really like we were morally water. We went the path of least resistance. If the truth was the least resistance, we told the truth. But, but if there was a lie that could get us out of trouble, then, then that might be where we would go. And, and you might say, well, sometimes Christians are still like that today, and I would say that maybe they're on the early stages of that glory need to keep being transformed. But the reality is, when we were still water, when we still went the path of least resistance, we went for what we liked, we went for what was easy, we went for what was advantageous for us, that was when Jesus died for us. Not when we even remotely deserved it, but when we were at our worst. Jesus died for us while we were ungodly. Now, when you think about the term ungodly, what you have to think about is the fact that that means that we are not like God and, and we don't give acknowledgement to God. We don't think about God. We don't consider God. 
the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That is who we all were when Jesus died for us. And so that's an important thing. So he was not, and this is the, the clear point that we need to make. He was not dying for people who deserved it, but for those who were still hostile to him. Hostile to him. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But to begin with, let's think about this. Jesus rescued us at the right time. So what was the right time? You know, immediately we think about verses like, you know, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, and it was the right time for God. It was his plan that Jesus would be sent at this time. But it was also the right time for us because we weren't getting any better. We were not going to get better. We were not going to get to a point where we deserved it or it was even, you know, a reasonable argument. We were at our worst. We were at our lowest, and that's when Jesus came to rescue us. It was God's plan and God's time and it was the time that we needed to be saved. So that's what it means about he came at the right time. So for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So it was God's time. Also, God has demonstrated his love for us. Demonstrated means to show it, to show it publicly. And so what Paul does is he tries to explain, well not tries, he actually succeeds. He succeeds in explaining God's love kind of in contrast to the love that man might have for each other. So he uses, you know, a human example. So only extremely rarely would a man give up his life for someone else. You know, maybe not even for a worthy man. So there's two words that are used here uh, in verse 7. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So righteous means someone that is known for keeping the laws. This doesn't mean a perfect person. It just means I know that he'll always obey the law. He, he, he may be grouchy, he may be, he may be rude, he may be all kinds of things, but he's going to obey the law. A good person means it's a person that is good to other people. He is kind, he, is, he, he shares, he, he, he is concerned, compassionate. So those are the two kinds of people. Paul says you will almost never find somebody that will just die for a lawkeeper. You might find someone that would die for a good person, but God demonstrated or God displayed his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So and while we were still in that worst possible state, he uses the word weak. He uses the word ungodly. He uses the word sinners. And he uses the word enemies of God. And in all of those times, that is where we were when Jesus died for us. So those are the pictures that, 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 that Paul uses to kind of explain that. So God made a public display of his love because we were still sinners when Christ died for us. And so, in keeping with the idea of not talking about bad news, because there is no bad news, maybe we should think just a minute, because it just magnifies our salvation, maybe we should think for just a minute about our sinfulness and where we were. There's this story about this man um, that he, he was struggling and really distressed over religion. He was going through a hard time where he didn't really know what was going to go on in his life, especially at the end of his life. And so he fell asleep and he had this dream. And in the dream, he was standing outside the gates of heaven. And he was looking and longing to be in there, but he just didn't feel like it was an opportunity that was available to him. In fact, as he's standing there, he hears this, this marching group of people come forward. And the first thing, he, see, he sees banners. He sees banners with the names of God and, 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 and just, just righteousness on it. And he starts hearing their songs and he starts hearing their rejoicing. And they go marching right into heaven. The gates open up. They go marching right in. And he asks, well, who were those people? 
And one standing near him says, those were the prophets, the ones that declared the word of the Lord. And he said, well, I can't go in with them. And so he's standing there for a little bit longer, really mulling over the idea that, that he may not get into heaven. And he hears another crowd, a little bit bigger crowd come up. And he, he begins listening. And, and again, they're singing, they're rejoicing, they're talking about Jesus. And he says, well, who are these people as they go into the gates? And, and he's told, these are the apostles. These are the first believers in Jesus Christ. They, you know, they, they, they lived and even in some cases they died for Jesus himself. And he said, well, I surely can't go in with them. And then an even larger crowd comes up next. And they are celebrating and, and their clothes are bloodstained. And they have went through, obviously, terrible things. But they are coming to, to heaven's gates and they open wide for them. They go in with rejoicing. And he says, well, who are these people? And, and, and the voice tells him, these are the ones that were martyred because of their faith in Jesus. And he says, well, I surely can't go in with them. And so in just a moment, there's another crowd that comes through and they are singing and rejoicing. They have Bibles in their hands and they're declaring the word of the Lord. And he says, well, who are these folks? And he said, these are the gospel preachers, the people that faithfully preach the word of God all their lives. And he says, well, surely I can't go in with them. And so he has begun to reach this point of despair where he is never going into heaven himself. And then he sees a crowd unlike anything he had ever seen before. It was people of every tribe and tongue, every nation that you could imagine. He looked and he could identify the woman that was caught in sin. Somehow he had this supernatural knowledge that, that he knew he was looking at the thief that had died on the cross right beside Jesus. He saw Samson and he saw the sinners that he knew from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as they are going by, he expects there to be a shout and an alarm and the gates to slam shut. But instead, they go right in celebrating and rejoicing. And he asks, well, who are these people? And he is told, these are mighty sinners that are saved by a mighty grace. And you know, that is what we are. You may not fit in the category of prophet or priest or even martyr, apostle, but we are all mighty sinners and we are saved by a mighty grace. We have a God that demonstrated His love for us. He didn't wait for us to earn His love. He didn't wait for us to earn His forgiveness and salvation. He died for us before we lifted a finger for Him. That is a God worth celebrating. That is a salvation worth sharing with other people. We have now been fully reconciled. So, even though our salvation is something that was completed in the past, it's done, we are saved, there is also a future aspect to it. Um, he will save us from the wrath that will be revealed in the end time. So that's what he says there uh, in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that's the past tense, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is going to be revealed against sin. Paul's already talked about that. But we are saved from that wrath. And so we were, and it says that while we were still enemies, verse 10, for if while we were still enemies we were reconciled, so this idea of being enemies, it's not so much because we are hostile to God, but because God is hostile to sin. So even if we didn't name God among our enemies before we were saved, he named us among his enemies. That's an important thing that we have to realize is that before we were saved, God named us an enemy because of our sin. But yet, even as he named us as his enemy, he sent his son Jesus to die for us. And so while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Reconciled. Or reconciliation is a part of salvation that absolutely never ends. 
In fact, the picture of reconciliation means um, to make peace after a quarrel. So we were against God. God was against us. There was a dispute. And Jesus came along and made peace in that dispute because His righteousness is now what is in between us and God. Not our righteousness, not our works, and not our you know, tab, but it is God who, it is God's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, who is between us and God at this point. So when Christ has done the splendid work of putting away our sin and bringing about our reconciliation to God, He will certainly go on and bring us to salvation through eternity. And so the point here is that our salvation is not just something we experience in this life, but it is something that has eternal ramifications. We will be with God. We are right with God. We will be part of His plan for all of eternity. And that is a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so the Christian life should be one of constant, spontaneous praise because of what God has done for us. And I would tell you that that's going to look different every single day. There may be a day that you burst out in song. Mondays are not usually days that I burst out in song, if you want to know the truth. Mondays are days that we kind of make it through the day. But even in that, remember endurance. Remember character. So if you have a hard day tomorrow, remember that God is using that to transform you into His glory. So He is growing you even in those very difficult days. Give Him praise in that. Worship Him and celebrate Him even in that. So as we wrap this up, there are several things that I want for you. As we finish this passage, there's things that I want for you to see. First, um, I want you to make sure that salvation is yours. The only bad news in this passage is that not everybody believes in Jesus. That's the bad news. If you were waiting for the other shoe to fall, you got to believe. We have to believe in the work of Jesus on the cross. Make sure salvation is yours. If all of these things that I've said are reasons to rejoice, if they don't raise your temperature a little bit, get you a little excited, consider what God has done in your life and make sure that He has saved you. The second thing I want for you is I want you to dwell on the peace, the access, and the hope that you have because of your salvation. Paul gave these to us as things that we should celebrate. These are things that should drive our worship. These are things that should lift us up in our dark times, and when we're already on the mountain, it should set us to shouting. These are the things that we should praise the Lord for. And so those are the things that we should dwell on. You know, the third thing I want is for you to rejoice in the Lord even in times of suffering. Because he's doing something. God does not waste pain and suffering. He does not waste the difficult times. He didn't put us in the valley. He didn't make us sick. He didn't lead us to tragedy. But he will lead us from it better and stronger. And so if you find yourself in a difficult situation, the natural human thing to do is say, oh, poor pitiful me, I'm going through a hard time. But the right thing, the godly, the spiritual thing, is to begin looking at how God is going to grow us. Because on the other side, you will be stronger and you will be more like Him. And finally, I want you to rest assured that you are saved and will spend eternity with Christ. When it's all said and done, this life is absolutely a battle. It is something that every day you will see something. The closer you get to God, the more you will see the enemy's attacks on Him. And those attacks aren't just on the kind of the ambiguous idea of God, they're on his people. And so you will see that over and over again. You will see the way that this world is doing everything it can to stop the work of Christ and to make the life of Christians miserable. 
But I want you to dwell on the fact that you are saved forevermore. There is not anything that anybody can do to take away your salvation. There's not anything you can do to lose it because it is God's work and no one undoes God's work. So let's go out from this place rejoicing for all of these reasons and so much more what God has done in your life. Let us celebrate Him. He is good and He is our Savior. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to gather together this morning and I just thank you for the beautiful gospel that you have given us. It started long, long ago. When we were sinners, you were already working to save us. But that night that Jesus was born and angels began to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, they were telling a brand new message that no one knew before this, that you were coming to earth, that you had come to dwell with us so that you could save us. And I think about that day on Pentecost where the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles and they went out into the city of Jerusalem and began to proclaim Jesus. And people were being saved by the thousands. Lord, now as we have studied this passage, we know that so many things happened in those people's lives in that moment. They were given peace. They were given access. They were given hope. They Now, their whole lives would be transformed. Even the difficult times would be a reason to rejoice. And I pray, Father, that you remind us that that very same miracle happened in our lives as well. And so, Father, I pray that our response will be similar, that we will begin telling others about you, that we will begin proclaiming your name just as a natural outflow of the rejoicing that's in our heart. Make us a happy people. We know that you have given us joy. We know that you have given us a reason to celebrate and to worship you. But I pray that you make us a happy people a type of person that people want to hear from because we are always talking about the good things. We're always celebrating because you are good. Let us be your messengers just like you sent those angels so many years ago. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.